Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher, Kevin Connor. For more information, visit kevinconnor.org. Last week, we, developed, uh, we uh, sort of shared together on uh, becoming bitter or better, and we found it was better to become better than become bitter. Everybody said amen. All right, tonight uh, sort of related a little bit to last week, and then uh, next week we're going to go up a, on a different angle here. Just want to talk about developing a, a Joseph attitude. I think, uh, and uh, you know, with a little bit I share uh, woven in with the word here, oh, none, of, none of us are exempt from these things. Uh, it, it's all just part of life. And uh, I think for myself, as for all of us here tonight, we had chance to testify that one of the greatest battles of my life, and I'm sure you can say it, your life too, uh, over the years has just been developing proper attitudes. We're not born with them. <laughs> I mean, no, they have to be developed, proper attitudes. And as I said, we all sort of face the you know, same battles in this area, uh, just may come from different, uh, different angles in our, our individual world. So on my notes here, by way of introduction, I said, I've got, uh, you have to have proper attitudes, you have to develop pro- proper attitudes, and then you have to maintain proper attitudes. Maybe you'd like to just put that thought down. So we have to have proper attitudes, uh, we have to develop proper attitudes, and then we have to maintain them. Can you say amen on that? So we have to have proper attitudes, we have to develop proper attitudes, and then we have to maintain them. I want to uh, read from Philippians chapter 2, and the particular verse that we're looking at tonight, I've I've spelled out on your notes, and I'm going to read it from the Amplified, so if you want to uh, just listen or follow along in the translation you've got, uh, you can. So I'm reading from Amplified uh, on the Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 11. So Paul says, so by whatever, whatever appeal to you there is in our mutual dwelling in Christ, By whatever strengthening and consoling and encouraging our relationship in him affords, by whatever persuasive incentive there is in love, by whatever participation in the Holy Spirit we share, and by whatever depth of affection and compassionate sympathy, fill up and complete my joy by living in harmony and being of the same mind and one in purpose, having the same love, being in full accord and of one harmonious mind and intention." Do nothing from factual uh, motives through contentiousness, strife, selfishness, or for unworthy ends, or prompted by conceit and empty arrogance. Instead, in the true spirit of humility, uh, lowliness of mind, let each regard the others as better than and superior to himself, thinking more highly of one another than you do of yourselves. Let each of you esteem and look upon and be concerned for not merely his own interests, but also each for the interests of others. And then verse 5 is sort of uh, what we're wrapping our thoughts around tonight. Let the same attitude and purpose and humble mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Let him be your example in humility. Who although being essentially one with God and in the form of God, possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God, he did not think this equality with God was a thing to be eagerly, eagerly grasped or retained, but stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity so as to assume the guise of a servant or a slave in that he became like men and was born a human being. And after he had appeared in human form, he abased and humbled himself still further and carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even the, de- even the death of the cross. Therefore, because he stooped so low, 
God has highly exalted him and has freely bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that in or at the name of Jesus every knee should and must bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue frankly and openly confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that a powerful passage of Scripture that Jesus being in the form of God humbled himself uh, and took upon himself the form of man, found in fashion as a man and humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross. And because of that, God has highly exalted him. All right, so uh, Scripture we're sort of basing our remarks on uh, is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 on your notes there. So let this same attitude and purpose and humble mind being you, which was in Christ Jesus, let him be your example in humility. Now, while, while the, uh, the word attitude is not used in the Bible as a specific word, uh, the, the truth of proper attitudes is taught uh, right through the Bible. Users has to do with being one in spirit, having humble spirit, uh, walking in humility and so forth. So though the word attitude is not specifically used, the, the truth of having a right attitude is, uh, is found in the Bible. Now, over the years, as I've looked at uh, various things, you know, read so much and so forth, under letter A, you might be able to jot down a couple of things. Picked up a number of years ago, just uh, some of the statistics, uh, why customers quit business, and uh, I'll try and say a little bit slow, uh, so you might pick up a, up, a, up a few things here. Just showing the importance of uh, proper attitudes. Uh, so on a, uh, a, a sheet that they had a survey uh, on businesses, why do customers quit? And uh, the first one says, 1% die. How many think that's a real reason to quit business? They all agree with that. 1% die. 3% move away. 5% make other friendships. So 3% move away, 5% make other friendships. 9% uh, they uh, quit because of competitive reasons. There's cheaper prices elsewhere. 14% uh, uh, are dissatisfied with the product. But this was very interesting here. 68% quit because of attitudes of indifference towards them by employers. So highest percentage uh, why people quit businesses uh, is because of attitudes of indifference toward them by employers. Uh, tremendous problems were evident because of wrong or negative attitudes, but great blessings by good, right and positive attitudes. So right or wrong attitudes affect ourselves in all circumstances and areas of life. So as we all know, God has to deal with attitudes and, uh, you know, as, I, as you get older, and I found this, uh, the enemy doesn't tempt you on so many other things as I used to go through uh, when I was a bit younger. But uh, one of the biggest things I've constantly got to watch is just keeping a good and a proper attitude. All right, so 68% quit businesses. And uh, we can apply this to churches. Why do people quit churches? Many, many times it's just because of bad attitudes between members or something like this. All right, under number two, uh, they did a survey on why executives were chosen. And this was an interesting survey too. This is a number of years ago, of course. Uh, and a study was taken on how executives are chosen. So the study uh, gave this report. 10% were chosen because of ability. So 10% uh, chosen because of ability. 10% were chosen because of appearance. So 10% chosen because of appearance. 5% were chosen on basis of adaptability. So 5% on uh, basis of adaptability. And 5% were chosen on the basis of availability. 
So 5% chosen on the basis of availability. Let me run through those again and then give you the big figure. So uh, in businesses, 10% were chosen because of ability. 10% were chosen because of appearance. Uh, 5% were chosen on the basis of adaptability. 5% chosen on the basis of, avail of availability. But listen to th uh, this here. 70% were chosen because of attitude. Wow, that, that, that is such a challenge, isn't it? So 70% uh, chosen because of attitudes. So uh, why executives were chosen. All right, now, uh, under definition, and uh, I haven't spelled it out too fully there, but uh, in uh, J.E. Adams' book, The, the, the uh, Christian Counselor's Manual, page 115, I think he has one of the best definitions of attitudes that I've read, and I've read a lot of them over the years, but uh, I felt this was one of the best. Adam says, an attitude is that combination of presuppositions, beliefs, convictions, and opinions that make up one's habitual stance at any given time toward a subject, person, or act. It is a mindset that strongly influences behavior. Let me just read that, and again, you don't have to take them, but uh, if you can get hold of uh, Christian Counselor's Manual of J.E. Adams, I think it's a little masterpiece myself. Everybody doesn't like Adam because, uh, Adams because he calls sin, sin, and they feel he's too hard on sin, and so a lot of them don't like him, a lot of counselors. Well, let's call sin, sin. Uh, let's call a spade a spade and not to say, you know, something else. So he says an attitude is a combination of presumptions, beliefs, convictions, and opinions that make up one's habitual stance at any given time toward a subject, purse, or act. And I like his uh, other sentence here. It is a mindset that strongly influences behavior. And that's, uh, that's worth taking down. So it's a mindset that strongly influences behavior. So how we feel about a person or a church or a place or our boss or our husband, our wife or our kids and so forth, it's a mindset that strongly influences behavior. Then he goes on a little bit more about uh, uh, negative, positive attitudes. Uh, down the bottom of this uh, definition I've got here, he says, attitudes usually involve habits of thought, habitual ways of thinking, changing attitudes like changes in behavior, uh, Behavior patterns require changes in habit that stems from biblical discarding, acquiring, or the putting off or putting on dynamic. Uh, when, the, when Paul tells us to put off the old man with its deeds, and so he says, put on. So there's a negative putting off, and then the uh, positive. All right, uh, uh, bear with me as I read uh, a great illustration here. And some of you may have read this, but I thought uh, just uh, by way of introduction, this is really good. Uh, Chuck uh, Swindle in his um, uh, textbook on the winning attitude, I think it's called, and I think we have it in the bookshelf up there. In chapter 1, uh, which is entitled, it's a bird, it's a plane, no, it's an attitude, uh, he gives this account of, uh, of, a, um, uh, of a friend on the plane. Let me read it to you. I think it's such a good one, and then uh, I'd recommend you take down sort of the, uh, the punchline of the thing. Uh, it was a beautiful day in San Diego, and my friend Paul wanted to take me for a ride in his airplane. Being new to Southern California, I decided to see our home territory from a different perspective. We sat in the cockpit as Paul completed his instrument checks. Everything was A-OK. -okay. So Paul revved the engines and we headed down the runway. As the plane lifted off, I noted the nose was higher than the rest of the airplane. I also noticed that while the countryside was truly magnificent, Paul continually watched the instrument panel. 
Since I am not a pilot, I decided to turn the pleasure ride into a learning experience. Everybody say learning experience. It's a learning experience. All those gadgets I began, what do they tell you? I notice you keep it looking, uh, uh, I notice you keep looking at, at that one instrument more than the others. What is it? And uh, this was a surprise to me, it might be to some of you. He said, that's the attitude indicator. So attitude indicator. And I asked, or the man asked, how can a plane have an attitude? In flying, the attitude of the airplane is what we call the position of the aircraft in relation to the horizon. I've heard of altitude, but never heard about uh, an attitude indicator. How many have heard of that? How many pilots around here? Okay, by now my curiosity had been aroused, so I asked him to explain more. When the airplane is climbing, he said, it has a nose-high attitude. Oh, no, I shouldn't do that. That's on the thing, isn't it? Eh? <laughs> it has a nose-high attitude because the nose of the airplane is pointed above the horizon. So I jumped in. When the aircraft is diving, you would call that a nose-down attitude. <laughs> uh, how many of you realize we use these terms? He's really... His nose is really up high today. Uh, that's right, my instructor continued. Pilots are concerned about attitude of the airplane because that indicates its performance. I think those two statements are really worth uh, taking down about the attitude of plane has an attitude indicator. I'll put that on your outline there. And then this one here. Uh, pilots are concerned about attitude of the airplane because that indicates its performance. So attitude indicates performance. Now I can understand why the attitude indicator is such a prominent place in the panel, I replied. Paul, sensing I was an eager student, continued, since the performance of the airplane depends on its attitude, that is such a key thing, performance of the airplane depends on its attitude, it is necessary to change the attitude in order to change the performance. I think that's such a good, uh, good statement, don't you? So uh, let me read that statement again. So, since the performance of the airplane depends on its attitude, it is necessary to change the attitude in order to change the performance. All right, he demonstrated this by bringing the aircraft into a nose-high attitude. Sure enough, the uh, nearly had piano. The plane began to climb and speed decreased. He changed the attitude and that changed the performance. Just a little bit more here and then uh, we'll move on. Uh, Paul concluded the lesson by saying, since the attitude of the airplane determines its performance, instructions now teach attitude flying. How many think we need to teach attitude flying in the church? <laughs> well, we're talking about that tonight. That conversation triggered my thinking concerning people's attitudes. Doesn't an individual's attitude dictate his or her performance? Does he have an attitude indicator that continually evaluates his perspective and achievements in life? What happens when the attitude is dictating undesir undesirable results? How can the attitude be changed? And if the attitude changes, what are the ramifications to clear uh, to other people around him? My friend Paul had an instructor's manual on uh, attitude flying, the relationship between the aircraft's attitude and its performance. We too, we have been given a handbook to attitude living the Bible. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the church at Philippi, placed uh, before those Christians an attitude indicator, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So attitude living, like attitude flying says, my attitude dict dictates my performance. Uh, I think that's a brilliant illustration. How many can say amen on that? 
All right, now, as I said, you know, when we share these things, uh, not sharing anything that none of us don't go through, and uh, none of us are exempt from these things. So over the years, as I was sharing last week, uh, I've had plenty of attitude testing. Anybody else beside me? Uh, anybody exempt from this? None of us ex- exempt. So uh, in one of the, the, the things I mentioned last week, in my third uh, excommunication, or just receiving the left foot of fellowship might be a nicer way of saying it, <laughs> I think I had the greatest test of my attitudes in that time. I want to talk about that. In this uh, third situation I was in, and I don't mention people's names, of course, just out of Christian courtesy here too, uh, because we're dealing... Uh, you know, when you're dealing with things, you try to attack the problem, not attack the person. That's really important. You attack the problem, not attack the person. So uh, at this time, I found out uh, too much about what was going on in this uh, senior ministry as he was, and uh, just the whole appearance of evil and uh, you know, just moral situations that were developing there. And uh, so uh, I found out too much about some of the love letters and so forth. And uh, I, I hope that uh, I attended his funeral at the graveside there, which was a very, very sad thing and very moving. Just a few people gathered around and hopefully uh, he came to repentance before uh, he died. Actually, his own son excommunicated his father in that uh, sad situation situation when it came. So uh, as I mentioned last week, and I want to repeat this again, over, over a number of months uh, in the congregation, we would get what I call shrapnel preaching. And there was just, <laughs> did I miss anybody? Anybody ever sat under shrapnel preaching? Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we would hear, you know, for, we'd get a period of months on murmuring and the judgments of God and how Israel murmured in the wilderness and how the judgments of God. And then uh, we'd have a period of... Uh, Touching the Lord's anointed, and anybody who touched the Lord's anointed, you'd sort of come under a curse. I don't know if I mentioned that that time that uh, uh, mum, uh, Mark's mum, uh, my first wife who'd gone to be with the Lord, uh, we lost a little baby between Sharon and, uh, and Mark at the time, about six months along, five, six months or so along. And just because of all the torment we were going through, just this month after month, what was going on, and then uh, we, we'd hear, get a period of sermons on missing out on the bride of Christ or missing out on the promised land. And I think I said th- this to you last week, uh, I've confessed sins I've never yet committed. We were, we were so anxious to be right with God, so anxious to be in the bride of Christ or in the promised land or something like that. And uh, so, you know, we, we would go home from the meetings there, um, you know, just, uh, just under all this. And because uh, I probably was oversensitive, some people are insensitive, some people are, you know, God conscious. Some people are people conscious. Some are unconscious. They're the hardest ones. They're the hardest ones to minister to. And uh, not here, of course. <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, we'd go home, my wife and I, and we'd sit at the table. And sometimes we'd just burst into tears just of the whole injustice of the, of the thing and this type of preaching. And then, then we'd sort of come under a, a false gift, uh, you know, false git, uh, guilt, guilt trip and think, well, maybe we are wrong. Maybe we've got a bad attitude. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to confess uh, because various ones would come under this and they'd go and confess. Well, he's confessed. They've confessed. Kevin's confessed. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, it, it was more expensive than being to a 
confession booth uh, some of those years. And uh, we'd often burst into tears, sit around the table, and then many times, to tell you the honest truth, and you know, I, I can uh, smile now, but many times I think, I am going out of my mind, I'm going mental, uh, because I couldn't rationalize uh, just all that was going on. And uh, at that time, as I said, there was nowhere else to go. We'd been kicked out of meetings uh, several times, and so there was just nowhere to go. So we just sat there and sat there and just sort of put up with it. And, uh, you know, I was just frightened of being put out of meetings at the time. So, but as time went on, uh, things began to surface more and more in the situation. And uh, to tell the truth, you know, this is what I'm talking about tonight, developing a Joseph attitude. I, I used to feel so angry inside, uh, just the whole injustice, how this senior minister seemed to get away with what we call blue murder. And yet so many of us were under torment of mind and, you know, just... Uh, just the whole thing. And uh, I think uh, just before we went to America, I was sitting in the meeting and for about uh, sometime, uh, uh, nearly three and a half years, I was told not to say anything. I just sat in the meeting saying nothing. I was not allowed to speak. And sometimes I'd go to shake hands and they wouldn't shake hands. And then someone said to me, uh, don't you realize God has made this man infallible? And uh, do you believe he's uh, one of the last day, 12 apostles? And if you didn't, you, did, you didn't get a handshake. And uh, yeah, so we went through a lot of those things, and some of you uh, from your own backgrounds can identify with this type of thing. At the time, I'd uh, been pastoring a church in Bendigo, and because I started to see what was going on, uh, the uh, senior minister at that time sent somebody up to Bendigo, went around all the members in my congregation and split the church wide open, and uh, so the church was only a small church, about 40 or 50 people at the time, and so when the church was split by going around house to house, uh, then uh, I had to leave Bendigo and come back to Melbourne and just get a job, and it just looked like everything was contradictory, the prophetic word that God had given me, everything just seemed contradictory, and I mean, talk about a test of attitudes and a lot of tears, a lot of seeking the Lord, uh, and that was the toughest thing. Now, I want to sort of give you under this, I felt God at the time uh, gave me two particular words, and maybe you'd like to uh, take one of them down. I'll sort of say it first and uh, give you time to take it down, and I hope it's helpful for all of us. Uh, over the years, you know, when I was going through all this and just uh, nowhere else to go because we were put out of meetings and you were just a heretic, everything like that, I felt as I was sitting in the meeting there sometime, I felt, uh, I just said to the Lord, Lord, I'm not learning anything. I'm just sitting here doing nothing, and uh, this, this man's an evil man, uh, yet he was a good preacher of the word, and yet the evil that was going on behind the scene, and I just felt, uh, Lord, I'm not learning anything. I just felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Kevin, you won't learn what to do, but you will learn what not to do. And if you learn what not to do, you will have learned. Now, that was just a real word from the Lord. So let me sort of say it again. So sitting there in the meetings, I felt I was not learning anything and just uh, the shrapnel preaching going on. And I just felt uh, the Lord say to me, you won't learn what to do, but you'll learn what not to do. And if you learn what not to do, you will have learned. And so as I look back over the years, I learned what not to do. And I said, Lord, if ever I do get back in the ministry, you know, anything like that, help me not to do to others from the platform what this man has done to so many of us. So uh, and I felt the Lord at the time just say, say to me, make everything a learning experience. And uh, the illustration the Lord brought to me at the time was uh, Saul and David. 
Saul started off so well, as uh, this senior minister did start off so well. Saul was anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, he was changed into another man. He received another heart. And we're told that uh, he was given signs and wonders in that time. Uh, but over the years, something happened in Saul's life. And as he drifted away from the Lord and started to lose the anointing, what did he do? He started to throw javelins. How many have read that uh, uh, very moving book, uh, A Tale of Three Kings? Uh, I, I recommend everybody should get it. I think I've read it three or four times, and I burst into tears every time I read it. Because he brings out that when, when the souls start throwing javelins at you, David didn't grab the javelin and throw it back. And every time I read that, and he ends up saying that in every one of us, there's a Saul or a David or an Absalom. Which one are we going to be? And as I've read that book over the years, I said, help me, Lord. Help me not to be a, help me not to be a Saul that throws javelins from the pulpit. Help me not to be an Absalom. But help me to be a David and not grab the javelins and throw them back. And uh, how many think God had to work on David's attitude? Because you see, David was anointed, but here's this man losing the anointing, and yet David had opportunities, as I've had over the years, and never said anything. Had opportunities to kill Saul, but he said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul had lost the anointing, David recognized that the anointing had been upon the man, and he said, I'm not going to touch him. And even when he cut off the skirt of his garment, when he had a chance to kill him, and Job said, kill him, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And God, God blessed David for it. And God's blessed me over the years because I didn't throw the javelins back when, when, uh, when they were flying there. So what, David, you know, I mean, the Lord showed me. David learned what not to do under King Saul. And that's why he became one of the most wonderful kings. And in spite of that blot on his life there, we find that every king in Israel, 39 of them, one queen, of course, but every king in Israel and, and Judah, they were all judged according to David. They walked not in the ways of the Lord, as did my servant David. David is the only one in the total Bible that God said, he's a man after my own heart. And so uh, David, a younger ministry, just anointed the Lord. He never threw the javelins back. So um, I think that book is in the bookshop here. And it's, it's a very moving book, as you can feel. I, I uh, read it three times. I say, Lord, help me never to be a Saul. So even, even when... Even when Saul eventually died, David lamented and wept over him. He didn't say, good, about time, glad God killed him. He never did. And I know when I stood at the graveside of this man, I cried. He said, how are the mighty fallen? But I learned, I learned what not to do. That's the thing. Because I remember the original man and the touch of the Holy Spirit and how my life was revolutionized. I saw the decline and the loss of the anointing and the javelin thrown. I said, help me not to do that, Father. And so what I say to you, saints, pardon me, being emotional on this, make every meeting a learning experience. You may, you may be under a different ministry. Some of you come from different fellowships. You may be in a situation where you may not learn what to do, but you'll learn what not to do. And if you learn what not to do, you will have learned. How many can say amen? I know when I went to uh, Portland Bible College under Dick Iverson, who I love very much, I learned what to do. I received more of a shepherd's heart. And uh, as, as I look back in hindsight, I can see that the Lord uh, 
Yeah, help me. I can see that the Lord used some of those things to break something in me that needed to be broken. Because as you can guess, I'm a pretty strong-willed person. You needn't say amen. (laughs) 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 And uh, just just as the angel wrestled with Jacob, uh, Jacob wasn't wrestling with the angel, but just as uh, the angel wrestled with Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And see, that's the seed of our strength. And in every one of us, there's a strongest part that the Lord has to be broken. And so when the angel couldn't uh, win through on Jacob as he struggled there, then the angel touched the hole of his thigh. And we're told that from then on, Jacob limped. And as one brother said I read years ago, he said, what does it matter if we go limping into the morning so long as our name is changed to Israel, being a prince with God and man? And the, the children of Israel would not eat the, eat the hollow because God touched something. And I, as I look back now, I, because we're talking about attitudes, I thank the Lord for that because something needed to be broken into me in my spirit so that I could minister out of a broken and contrite spirit and out of a good attitude. How many can say amen? That, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Pardon me on this one. So uh, make everything a learning experience. And... Uh, yeah. All right, uh, the second thing, I've got to keep moving on. Pardon me being emotional tonight. I didn't have it on my notes. Okay. <laughs> All right, so, so first Rima word the Lord gave me, and that's sort of under attitude test was, you know, you won't learn what to do, but if you learn what not to do, you will have learned. So make everything a learning experience. How many can say amen on that? All right, the sec- second word I felt the Lord give me over those hard, hard years uh, was this. I'll sort of say it and see if you can take a thought down. Uh, I felt the, it was just a rumor from the Lord. The Lord just quickened it by the Holy Spirit. And I felt the Lord say to me, and I, I wrote it down here, Be a Joseph. Fill your barns with the seed of the word. In time there will come a famine of the word, and the brethren will be hungry, and you will open your barns and feed them. Develop a Joseph attitude. So let me say that again. It was very, I'm sort of condensed it a bit, but I felt, felt the Holy Spirit say, Be a Joseph. Fill your barns with the seed of the word. I'll explain that more fully. So fill your barns with the seed of the word. In time, there will come a famine of the word, and the brethren will be hungry, and you will open your barns and feed them. Develop a Joseph attitude. Now, now, when that word, word of the Lord came to me, you see, over those years, you know, there were no, no open doors. There was no signs of ministry ever. And uh, to tell, just to be honest, I'm being very open with the, these nights. The, the, you know, I even felt, well, what's the good of even studying the Bible? You know, I mean, I'll never be preaching again. I've lost my credentials. I've lost my church. I'm back at a regular job. And uh, you're a reject. You're a heretic in most Pentecostal churches here. And I uh, just said, what's the good of even studying the Word? Forget it. Just, you know, that's it. You know, and all the prophecies I'd had over my life about the Lord opening the Word to me and God, in due time, God would open doors and I was not to force the doors, but I was just to step into them. Uh, the whole thing just seemed a contradiction. It just seemed a contradiction and just hopeless and useless. As I said, there was nowhere to go, so you just put up with it. And uh, so... What I felt the Lord just remind me, say, no, I want you to be a Joseph 
And over these years, and the Lord just reminded me of the story of Joseph, which we'll end up on here, that uh, God gave Joseph a dream. And uh, he showed him, or Pharaoh a dream, pardon me. And in the dream, he showed Pharaoh that there would be seven years of plenty, and then there would be seven years of famine. And so Joseph got a word from the Lord and told Pharaoh, I believe this is what you should do. Fill your barns, gather all you can over those years of plenty because it's going to come seven years of famine. It'll be too late to grow up then. So I felt the Lord just impressed me. Kevin, bury yourself in the word uh, and study the word and fill up your barns. And so in those days... I took out a sheet, uh, 168 hours a week, and I wrote out my seven days of the week. And uh, someone asked me in uh, Kianali Seminar, what, what, would one, what, what would be one word that would summarize, how would you summarize yourself in one word? And I said, one word, discipline. And that's, that's it. So discipline of my mind, discipline of my time, discipline of my habits, just discipline. I'm a disciplinarian, and I reap the benefit of them now, but I discipline. So I wrote out my 168 hours of the week, and uh, Sunday, well, Sunday uh, morning was always study time. Sunday afternoon there was a meeting, so I went to that and just sat through the shrapnel <laughs> preaching and teaching, picked out the shrapnel, and I got home, cried a bit more, you know. Okay. Ask the Lord, pray, help me, attitude, Lord, you know. Okay. And then um, uh, Monday, I worked at a 40-hour week jo uh, job in those days. I used to ride a bike to Abbotsford 20 miles a day. Uh, hail, rain, or shine, if I did go by train on occasion, I always had my Bible there, the black Bible. I'd always get a seat. Uh, people would move away, scared to death of that black book that I had. So it's great. Uh, read my Bible in my lunch hour. I memorized the whole book of Hebrews in those days. I quoted the whole thing coming back from Sydney to Melbourne, this Mr. Verse here and there. But I just brainwashed myself with the word. So I built a little den down at the back of my garage and uh, used to go down there and study after I wound up the cat, put out the clock. I mean, <laughs> wound up the clock, put up the cat, prayed with the kids, got them to bed, kissed them, tell them I loved them. I'd go down and study. Sometimes Mark would come down when he was seven years of age. He'd be looking at Strong's and Cordons trying to help me. It was more of a hindrance than a help, but I <laughs> couldn't tell him that and get him to bed, uh, you know, chloroform him to get him to sleep real quick. Don't tell him I said this, will you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so discipline, and there was, there was lots of love in my house, not uh, having, having parents. There's lots of love. Love you, Mark. Love you, Sharon. Love your dad. Love your mum. There's plenty of love in our house. We never, my wife and I never criticized. Our kids never heard us criticize over those years when we were going through those things. And, and even when Mark came back at 19 years of age, he said, Dad, why aren't we going to go back to that place where we used to worship? He said, I'm old enough now. I'm, I'm mature enough. I won't let anything affect my attitude. But God showed us. We would talk in our bedroom, cry in our bedroom, but we never let, let poison. What I talked about last week, we never let bitterness get in our spirit and affect our kids. And so many kids have been lost because of what their parents did and never did it. There was plenty of love in my house. Yeah. So... So over these years, so I disciplined myself, so 40 hours of working a week. Sometimes if I went by train, it was 12 hours uh, on the train, but i read the Word, study the Word. And over those years, I just filled up my barns full of the Word, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. I just did the Word, and I thought it was crazy. But you know, eventually the Lord said to me, you don't study my Word just to get sermons. 
You study my word because you love me. That's the issue. It's not just a sermon book to get sermons out. It's God speaking to us. Amen? We love, we love his word because we love him. This is his love letter to us. So I did that. And I know that if I hadn't have done that over the years, when I went to Portland and had so many hours of preaching, had to be a source of, uh, just a source of the word to some of the Timothys uh, in the faith over there that I look back on and honor, I would never have been able to do. But you see, the time came when I stored up my barns full and the time came when I opened up. The, those barns to feed hungry people. All the textbooks and everything like that I've done that have gone into 82 nations. Every nation I go into, they say, Kevin, we've got your textbooks. You don't know. One church, I think I mentioned last year, said you have been shepherding us for 20 years through your books and through your tapes from Waverly Christian Fellowship, and I never knew it. We just cried on that. I remember when I went to Portland at this time, just uh, the Lord gave me a dream. I'm not given the dreams. All visions, you know, old men have dreams, young men have visions, I have neither. Because <laughs> I was sort of right in between. But I remember in a dream that the Lord sort of took me up uh, like Ezekiel, grabbed me by the hair of my head, I had more of it then, and uh, it was uh, harder for God to count them uh, then because I had more. Uh, and just sort of, you didn't get that, some of you did, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, so I uh, just took me by the hair of my head and took me over the waters somewhere, and I didn't know where, and dropped me in this land and just said, uh, Kevin, in this land you'll, you'll, be, you'll love and be loved. And I didn't realize till 10 years when I came back from Portland that God had healed me on the inside. And sometimes the kids used to say to me, Brother Connor, were you hurt in Australia at all? I said, why? Because I said... Everything is, every statement you make, you're always justifying it. You're always uh, safeguarding it with another statement, and then you safeguard that statement with a, another statement. Were you hurt? And I realized how deep it had gotten into my spirit, and I just asked the Lord. So to come back to Australia was a very hard thing because God gave us favor in America of hundreds of churches and thousands of people. To come back to Australia to nothing, Apparently, Waverly Christian Fellowship with Richard, one didn't see much. People said I was insane, but God gave me a word, said return and open up your barns. And just to run ahead on this, I have preached on some of the very platforms that kicked me off. And when I went there, I was able to say what Joseph did. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I didn't feel any, any bitterness in my spirit. God help me to develop a Joseph attitude. How, how, how many hear what I'm saying tonight? Let, let me go on to this before I start crying anymore. Okay. I'm just crying myself happy. Okay. Let, let, let's, let's go. So attitude test was, you know, if you won't learn what to do, you'll learn what not to do. And if you learn what not to do, you've learned. And then be a Joseph. Develop a Joseph attitude. Store up the barns and feed the word. Because there's going to come a famine for the word. Then you'll have to open up your barns and give out the word. It'll be too late to grow at them. Boy, and I look back over those years. So when the Lord said that about developing a Joseph attitude, so it drove me to do a character study on the life of Joseph and find out what the Lord really meant by developing a Joseph attitude. Now, uh, you've got a few little fill-ins there on your notes, so maybe I'll just go over to the, the, the board here and just write down a couple of things. Uh, I'd like you to turn over, first of all, maybe before I do that, turn over to the, um, 
the uh, book of Psalms. Psalms. Everybody doing okay? I promised myself I wasn't going to cry tonight. Okay, uh, go, to, go to Psalm 105. <clears throat> Psalm 105. And uh, we'll just pick up in, um, in verse uh, 15. Just a few verses you've got on your notes there. A um, couple of verses. So, uh, Psalm 105, and it says, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of prayer, uh, bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Uh, they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons, and uh, some of the old marginal references, uh, he was laid in irons, he, uh, but the iron entered into his soul. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tried him, the word of the Lord tested him. All right, now on your, uh, on your diagram there, you've just got uh, this simple thing here. And how many know that God uh, has some very nasty ways? <laughs> All right, this is what I want you to fill in. Uh, in Joseph's experience... God gave him the word of promise. So uh, you didn't just put this up here. God gave him a word of promise. And how many know that God has a nasty habit of never fulfilling promises immediately? Does anybody identify with this? I mean, God gives you promises and then he lets you stew in your juice. Uh, that's, uh, you know, symbolic. And so down here, somewhere years later... God gives you the word of fulfillment. So, word of promise, uh, word of fulfillment, promise fulfilled. Now, word of fulfillment, is that right? All right. Now, in this period of time here, for Joseph, it was 13 long years. He was a kid of 17, just a young man, youth, when he was sold, and 13 long years, what he went through. So, in this part, I'd like you to put, this is where the word of promise is tried. The word of promise is tried. So God gives you a promise back here. And Joseph had these tremendous dreams of 11 sheaves bound to his sheaves, sun, moon, stars bound to his twinkle, twinkle, little star. Hell, I wonder what you are. Everything like that. And he's just quite elated about it. And I remember when I received the prophecies that God would open doors to me, would open the word to me, and the word would be, seals of the book would be broken and rivers of revelation would flow. So yeah, wonderful. <laughs> But when you land into this part here, you wonder, where is God? So we don't know the period of time. So this is always word of promise. And this is the word I want you to put here. The word of the Lord tried him, tested him. So there's always a period of, of trial and testing. And uh, I know many of you receive prophetic words, laying out of hands, prophecy and so forth. And God gives you a promise. And you think, where is it ever going to be fulfilled? So God just has that uh, nasty little thing. Now, I want you to notice here, sort of as we start moving into uh, landing soon, here, I want you to notice some of the tests that God went through. And this is in my application, in my own heart. And I'm sure can apply, you know, truth is applicable to us all, really. Notice the test that uh, Joseph went through. Number one, for you fill in here, there was the test of time. There was the test of time. God just doesn't fulfill promises immediately. The world is not waiting for the manifestation of you <laughs> or me. <laughs> There's the test of time. And Joseph didn't know. 
what was going to happen. And you see, it's in that test of time, God exposes what's in our heart. I want you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 8, quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And, and, and I know, it, you know, in my own experience, and for all of us, this is so applicable. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And here the Lord tells them uh, why he led Israel into the wilderness. Okay, so 40 years wandering in the wilderness, but listen to it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I'm reading just the first few verses here. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God, uh, Lord your God, led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now, notice it. Number one, to humble thee. To humble you. So, I, God had to break something in my heart, break something in my strong spirit. It was hard, it hurt. And number two, to prove you, to test you. So number one, to humble you. Number two, to test you. And listen to number three, to know what was in your heart. So God puts us all in circumstances to expose what's in our heart. And the wilderness either brings the best or the worst out in all of us. And we can say amen here. So to humble us, to prove us, to test us, to, to know what was in our heart, whether you would keep his commandments or no. And he humbled you, suffered you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so all these things, everybody goes through. Moses, Joseph, David, Naaman, they go through. All right, so tests of time. We don't know. God's got that in his hands. All right, number two, second fill in here that Joseph went through was test of uh, promises. Test of the promises. Put yourself in Joseph's position. Here I am down in Egypt. I've been sold out by my brothers. All these promises, dreams of sun, moon, stars. Have a dream. I have a dream. Forget it. Forget it. Test of the promises. Number three, I have to move on quick. I'd like to spend a lot of time on this. Test of faith. Did God really speak to me? Did I have a, you know, did I have a nightmare that I forgot to feed? Some of you will get that later on. Was the dream really of God? I believed it at the time, but I mean, look where I am. Oh, yeah. Number four, test of moral purity. When Mrs. Potiphar's wife tested him day by day, pestered him, come and lie with me, test of immorality, test of moral purity. He could have just rationalized it. Well, you know, the dreams, they've had their day. There's nothing, I mean, forget it. I mean, who knows where my mum and dad are? Who knows where my brothers are, the stinkers? <laughs> Those modern paraphrase. But he went through it. I may as well let myself go. This woman's after me. And day by day, he could have just sold himself like that. But he said, no, I'm not going to sin against God. Moral impurity was a sin against God, let alone Pharaoh's wife and Pharaoh and uh, Potiphar and so forth. Wow. Number five probably was the hardest thing, and I've just condensed this because this is a whole couple of hours message here. Test of attitudes. Test of attitudes. 
Okay, you just have to use your own imagination, your own experience, because we all go through it, not just me. I, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not asking for a pity party or anything like this. It's just part of the package, dear. When, when you get saved, people don't tell you the fine print. When people get saved, you should show them the fine print and take them down the bottom of the page, which says, P.S., God is out to kill you. <laughs> now, you're laughing with me, not at me, Okay. Yeah, nobody ever tells you, you know, come and accept Jesus, everything's wonderful, pie in the sky when you die. But they don't tell you about the cross that he's going to stick on your back. We con them into salvation. (laughs) Not Kevin Connor. Okay, okay. Just five of the things I had a whole, I had 20 of them, (laughs) but I thought five would be enough. Uh, Letter A, his attitude toward God. Do you think that was tested? God, why did you let this happen? God, what do you think you are? You think you're God, don't you? Why did you even give me the dreams? I shouldn't have even told my brothers about it. I don't... Don't say it. Okay, how many think his attitude towards God? And all of us go through it. Let it be. Attitudes, I mean, you could spend a lot of time on each of these, couldn't you? Attitudes to Jacob, his father even. Well, Dad, why did you even send me down to see my brothers? I mean, if it hadn't been for you, you said, go and see how your brothers are doing, seeing if they're looking after the sheep. And if I hadn't gone there, I mean, he could have just... Boy, he could have. Number, number C, letter C. Attitudes towards Potiphar's wife. You wicked woman. It's through you I landed into jail. And I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. Oh, I like what someone said. Uh, you know, when Mrs. Potiphar went before whoever it was, said, I've got Joseph's coat. His coat didn't prove anything. I mean, Joseph lost his coat twice. First, his coat that was dipped in the blood of the goats and given to his dad. So his dad believed all those years that he was dead. And God never gave him a word of knowledge. He had to trust God in the dark. And now he's second time. But I like what one brother said. Joseph lost his coat, but he never lost his purity. And people can take away, there's a message there, people can take away your reputation, but they can't destroy your character. Only sin destroys your character. I deal with that. I'm not. Okay. Attitude to part of his wife. He could have been filled with bitterness, bad, rotten attitude. All right, letter D, quickly. Just got a few more moments here. Attitude toward the butler. I mean, put yourself, you're in prison, you've been falsely accused, all the accusations, javelins have been thrown at you, and, uh, and, and you're there in the prison, God gives you favor with the jailkeeper, and then the butler and the baker, they both have a dream, and Jacob, uh, jo- Joseph gets the interpretation, and, you know, Joseph's just a human being. What, he's 17, 18, 20, 25 years of age, or you know, getting up to nearly 30 years of age now. 13 long years and all he's been through. And he says to the butler, look, you know, put a, put a good word in for me when, you, when you're restored back to your position there. And you know, God just says nasty little words, but the butler forgot him. Who wants friends, enemies, if we've got friends like that? I mean, the stinker, he just left me, he forgot me. I interpret his dreams, I get him back there. And he's, but you see, God's time, God's test, test of attitudes. And then the toughest one, letter E, was test 
of his attitudes to his brothers. Attitude to his brothers. All right, I just have to sort of wrap up here. But I, I, I don't know how you feel. I, I can never read the story of Joseph and the reconciliation with his brothers. His brothers, in due time, the famine hit. And in due time, the brothers come down to Egypt. And Joseph's dressed like an Egyptian. He's next to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's been exalted. He's got a, a wife now, a couple of kids, I think. Or they're on the way somewhere. Uh, and all of a sudden, he recognizes his brother. Now, what do you think was in Joseph's heart and attitudes? I'm going to make these guys really suffer. I'm going to make you pay for the 13 years you selling me out, the dirty things I'm going to make. But there's nothing in it. And when eventually, I mean, he was rough with them because he was trying to bring them under conviction. Eventually they came under conviction. And then when uh, at the end there, and he saw, you know, how wonderful it was. Because, see, Joseph saw in the dream uh, 11 sheaves bowing down to him. And at the time he only had 10 brothers. And he knew if the dream was of God, I must have a brother. I must have another brother. He'd never seen Benjamin only as a sheaf in the dream. And when he saw Benjamin, he just burst into tears. This is my brother. This is the brother I saw in the dream. And finally he just said, everybody out. And he just burst into tears and sobbed and sobbed. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, who you sold. And uh, just go to the verses there. I put it down the bottom. Our time's just about through. It is, it is so profound. Let me just read it. In, 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 in Genesis uh, 49 and verse 22, it says, Joseph is a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. That is such a powerful verse. A fruitful, brand, a fruitful vine by a well, the source of his supply. His branches run over the wall. And so in Genesis 45... And uh, verse 4, uh, put that on your notes, it should be there. Genesis 45, verse 5, God did send me. Genesis 45, verse 7, I've got some wrong verses here. Uh, God sent me. Genesis 45, verse 8, change that, Genesis 50 to 45, sorry. So 45, verse 5, 7 and 8, God did send me, God sent me. It was not you that sent me, but God. And I think the climax of it all is... Uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. And he opened up his barns, fed his brethren. As I said before, I've been on some of the very platforms that I was once referred to as a heretic, and I was able to go on the platform in my attitude, in my spirit, say, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, because he needed to work something in my life. So, as we finish here, how would you rate your attitude? Never better. Positive. Could be better. Negative. Nose high. <laughs> or nose down. Attitude determines performance. And so all of us go through this as I wrap up here. Our attitudes toward God or husband and wife relationship. Attitude toward our parents. Attitudes toward our kids or work, our employer. Employees, attitude in church, attitude to self, attitude to your cell leaders <laughs> or other members, attitude to the government, <laughs> you know, attitude to the word of God, attitude to yourself. Joseph had an attitude of 
trust and faith, humility and love, and he trusted the sovereignty of God. How many of you have learned something tonight? Let's all stand together. Our time's up. Thank you for being such a good bunch. So let's, uh, let's just lift our hands and close in prayer. Father, we just, uh, yeah, we, just, we just humbly thank you, Lord, for grace in all of our lives. We, we all have a story, Lord, and we're all tested in this area. We will be till Jesus comes. <laughs> Help us, Lord. Help us, Father. Father, just as you helped me to, de- to develop a Joseph attitude, I pray, Father, for so many brothers and sisters here. We go through so many things in our own individual world. Lord, we're all tested. I pray, Lord, that the, the attitude and humility of Christ will be in all of our hearts and that our attitude to people, Lord, that we'll not become bitter but better and our attitude will dictate our performance. May we perform as Christians in the true sense of the word. So bless your word to all of our hearts, Father, tonight. May it fall upon good ground and bring forth fruit, we ask in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said amen. God bless you. Look forward to seeing you next week. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books, and his ministry.